Well, as you can see from the slide behind me, today we begin a new series in the the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, related to the Lord's Prayer. But we're actually going to spend the first message today looking at verses 5 through 8, which are a prelude, if you will. It's what helps us to understand the value of the Lord's Prayer set at that particular point. And the Lord gives us instruction, uh, and as we'll dig into it today, looking specifically at the Father to whom we are praying. And then next week, God willing, we will look at the King whose kingdom we are seeking in prayer. Week number three, we're going to spend time looking at that petition that, uh, that believers have used through the centuries, give us this day our daily bread, but we're also going to jump ahead in the chapter to verses 16, 17, and 18 and take a, a brief look at fasting. And it strikes me that daily, typically we're praying, Lord, give us our bread, but then there are also those moments in the Christian life and walk where we say, Lord, I'm not even going to eat bread today because prayer is the priority. And so we're going to look at fasting. And then the fourth message, God willing, we'll look at the last portion of the Lord's Prayer and seeing God as the merciful one who forgives our sins and delivers us from evil. So I'm very excited uh, about spending these remaining weeks in January in Matthew 6. Um, I'm also excited about the fact that uh, for at least three of the next four Sundays, we're going to move out of our worship time and use the adult equip class for prayer. And we're going to put feet uh, to our study and pray in the very ways that the Lord is teaching us and uh, we'll, we'll do that, God willing, in just a little while. So uh, pray with me, please. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing over this time in his word. And let's pray together that God would teach us to pray. Father, how thankful we are that you have given us your word. And thank you for those portions of Christ's earthly ministry that have been pre- preserved for us through the gospels in particular. And to read the words that he taught and proclaimed, these words are life, these words are a treasure, and these words are transformational. Would you give us the grace to believe them today? And would you give us uh, the faith to put them into practice? We know, Lord, that there are uh, a variety of of heart needs here in the room today. There are some who are overwhelmed with grief and sorrow. They feel like they are in a very deep and dark place at the moment. But would you lift them out of that dark place? And would you speak to them in such a personal and intimate way that they would know, first of all, you are God the Father who loves, who cares, who knows, who sees, and who will, in fact, deliver. For others who feel the turmoil and pressure of life, and while not despairing or discouraged, they're just weakened by the exertion that life demands of them. Strengthen them today. Renew their vision of God as their Father. Renew their hope. Renew their motivation so that they would be able to return to this busy and challenging season of life. Fill them up, Lord, 
that they might know your strength powerfully at work in them. For others, Lord, who have such heavy burdens on their hearts for family or friends who are away from you, some continue to cry out day and night even for the salvation of a dear loved one, for the rescue of a child. Oh, how I pray that you would hear those prayers even today and remind them that you know the specifics of that need that they are crying over even before they uttered the first word. Father, we need you. This community needs you. The recent reports of suicides are devastating to us and there are some here who've been touched by those in very personal ways, perhaps a neighbor or a coworker or a Uh, an acquaintance. Lord, it just devastates our souls to see those who are created in the image of God uh, as we are reach a point of such despair that they believe the very best solution is the end and destruction of life itself. Oh, Lord God, our community needs to be rescued from this darkness We need to be delivered from the evil one who stands behind these devastating moments. And I pray on this day that you would cause your gospel message to spread throughout this valley wherever it is preached publicly and shared privately. Oh, Spirit of God, empower the proclamation of that gospel that those who are desperate and discouraged and even considering uh, on this day the destruction of their lives would be rescued. Please, please. And we ask, Father, that all of these things would be done for the glory of your great name, for the joy of our Savior, who laid down his life that we might be saved, and for the joy of our hearts. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you open your Bibles to Matthew 6, please? Matthew 6. You follow along as I read Matthew 6, verses 5 through 8. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This is the word of our Lord. How thankful we are to Him for it. How would you characterize your prayer life today? There may be certain words that come to mind uh, and certain comparisons or contrasts that we could use. And some of you would say, my prayer life is fulfilling at the moment. It's not perfect. Whose is? Others of you would say, no, mine's frustrating. Maybe some of you would say, my prayer life is consistent. Others would say, "Mm, faltering. Is it fruitful? Or do you feel like it's fruitless at the moment? Maybe you would say, focused. I'm on a good plan. I've got a good routine going. Others would say, I'm so distracted when I, when I pray. It's just, it's frustrating to me. And then others would say, I, I never run out of things to say. 
My heart's full of the word of God or full of praise to him or, or full of needs that I know need to be uh, set before him in petition or friends or family members for whom I intercede. And others would say, I'm just totally at a loss of words. Well, you know, you're not alone if you're on the right side of that in particular. There was a, a survey done in 2019 by Crossway and of over 14,000 people, by the way. And I know that's kind of small, but if you can look at those categories, you would see that of these 14,000 people that were surveyed regarding their prayer lives, only 2% scored their prayer life on a scale of 1 to 10 as 9 or 10. That means 98% are somewhere between 8 and below. And you can see how it seems to be weighted heavily in the lower half of that scale. I don't think there's a person here who would actually claim to have a perfect prayer life. And those of you who are mature saints who've walked with the Lord for many years actually probably feel a growing need to pray. And you already pray more than maybe the vast majority here in this room today. But it doesn't matter at what stage you are in your Christian life, at what point of growth and maturity you are, all of us know prayer is essential. And as you read the Gospels and you study the patterns and practices of Christ's life, you begin to notice that woven into the public ministry of preaching and healing, the personal conversations with friends, the discipleship and training of the 12, there is an essential strand that really does bind it all together. Friday morning at our men's meetup, we were just surveying some of the gospel passages, and we were noting in particular how Luke's gospel highlights several key things related to the personal prayer life of Jesus. And if you look at, uh, I'll step out of the way here for some of you, if you look at Luke 3, 21, you find Jesus prayed at his baptism. You come to chapter 5 in verse 16 and see that he actually withdrew to a desolate place to pray. Chapter 6, verse 12, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer uh, on that particular uh, moment. And then chapter 9, he was praying alone. The disciples were with him, but he was praying to the Father. And then Luke 9, 28, he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. That's the famous transfiguration passage. But then you finally come to Luke 11, and this is actually the, the parallel account to Matthew 6, where we are, the, the disciples reach a point where they say, Lord, teach us to pray. It's almost as if the Lord had let them just watch and listen and observe and begin to draw connections between the essential uh, nature of his prayer life, the power of his ministry, maybe even the different dynamic relationally that he had with his heavenly father as he prayed to them, and the great gap between their own practices of prayer. And I do believe that God in his kindness will sometimes let us see in other people or read in biographies of of saints who have gone before us or even observe in the prayer lives of other people differences so that we too begin to feel a gap as it were, a gap between what we do and what we believe God would call us to do. I love the fact that in response to the disciples' request, Lord, teach us to pray, Jesus gives them a very simple and straightforward lesson. Be glad that prayer is not a complicated skill set. So the Lord gives us a framework. And really with 
little fanfare, no drama. The Lord gives to us a simple pattern. That's what we're going to be exploring. But even before he gets to that pattern, he talks in terms of a relationship, and that relationship makes all the difference. Now look at the text with me again, and notice there are a couple of negative examples that he draws upon. In verse 5 of Matthew 6, when you pray, you must not be like, and the first group he names are the hypocrites. And he says, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. You know, it becomes clear immediately that the father does not respond to false motives like a public show. So if you or I were to stand up in a place like this and say, Oh, Lord, we thank thee that thou hast given us life. You know, everybody, you're a little uncomfortable right now, aren't you? Even though you know I'm not serious. But if we were to pray in that way just to make a public display, how far is that prayer going? Bouncing off the ceiling, bouncing off the floor, and then whenever the sound of my voice dies, the prayer dies. God's not coerced by that. He's certainly not impressed by it. Well, the hypocrites are praying to be seen by others. The typical Jew prayed three times a day. As one of my favorite gospel commentators, uh, Craig Keener, has noted, it's likely that some people strategically planned to be out in public so that as they kept these traditional prayer times, they could be seen. Nobody here would ever order their day to be in a strategic location, to be seen for their spirituality and piety, would you? No. Mm, Maybe. There's a little bit of hypocrite in all of us. In John 5, 44, and then even John 12, verse 43, Jesus called out the Pharisees in particular. One of their great weaknesses was that they loved men's praise more than God's praise. That's what's taking place in a in a hypocrite's heart. They seem very religious, but they're praying to be seen by others. Isn't that sad? The, the real priority in prayer is be seen by God. Pray in a way where he and I, or he and you, are in direct communication. For just a moment, though, think about what, what's taking place, because this, this is something all of us struggle with, What is it hypocrites are really looking for at the end of the day? Well, they need the justification of other people. Let me say that a little differently. They need the affirmation of other people. Because let's face it, it feels good to us, doesn't it? When when somebody says something to us, words like these. Stephen's part of our worship team, and I say, Stephen, you are an amazing bass player. That feels good, doesn't it? And, and it is true, but if Stephen is simply playing for the affirmation of people like you and me, well, he's got his reward. All of us need to guard against that. It's one of the things, that, one of the temptations that will actually emerge when we have some public prayer times like we plan to, to do in the next hour. Guard your heart against it. And before you're so judgmental of hypocrites, you, you need to ask, where's the hypocrite in me? And, and at the end of the day, is the justification or affirmation of another person really going to matter in eternity? The justification we need is the justification that comes from God, and he doesn't justify you and me on the basis of our works of righteousness. Hypocrites pray to be seen. That's a false motive for prayer. Not only are there 
uh, is there a false motive present in this passage? But notice in the second place, Jesus warns us against what I would describe as a false manipulation. Look at the next phrase. Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, understand this. Gentiles has reference to the unconverted. It's not an ethnic designation in this case. Jesus is not speaking of non-Jewish people. He's speaking of non-believing people. And there are all kinds of historical records from that day, from pagan forms of worship, just you know, running right through the, the non-religious class. And the particular thing that Jesus is pointing out is that many people think if, if they can just say enough religious phrases or use enough religious words that they'll be heard by God somewhere, somehow. It's interesting that empty phrases has reference to babble, to just aimlessly talking. This kind of prayer seeks its effectiveness through the quantity and duration of prayer. Now, think for a moment. What's the critical thing missing in, in both groups? For hypocrites who just pray to be seen and for non-believers who, who find some kind of spiritual mantra and just say it over and over and over again and hope that it, it matters. Well, that's what Jesus now brings front and center. What's missing is relationship. There's no true relationship with the God of heaven. And notice how Jesus brings this into stark contrast to those two groups, but sharp focus for our blessing and benefit. The Father is in view, and Jesus is teaching us we are praying to a Father who sees, first of all, and rewards, remarkably. Now, think about that first idea. The Father sees you. Look at verse five. When you pray, go into your room. Now, the, understand, the typical Jewish home had only a couple of rooms in it. We're, we're spoiled. I mean, even those of you who say, I live in such a tiny house. You know, comparatively speaking, you probably live in a larger house than the average Jewish family uh, resided in in the time of Christ. And these homes did not typically have any interior doors. Think about that, moms and dads of, of little people. My mind is going down a pathway I don't need to go right now. Finding a private place could be very, very difficult. And this is actually part of the reason Jesus, probably part of the reason Jesus rose early and went up on mountain sites to pray. Uh, because the, the home where he was staying, and remember, he was frequently the guest of other people because he didn't actually own his own home. He needed to find a private place. So Jesus is speaking of a room in the interior of the house, and some houses did have those rooms. They had no windows in them, and they were more of a private. Uh, the King James Version even uses the term closet, which I think is helpful to communicate the, a, a sense of a, of a private spot. And then Jesus says, shut the door. Close yourself in. Close yourself in so that you can be free to communicate with the Father without distraction or without interruption. I've been reading through a a really wonderful book, Living a Prayerful Life by Andrew Murray. He's long been with the Lord and was used of the Lord mightily uh, in his generation. But Murray writes, when a general chooses the place from which he intends to strike his enemy, he pays most attention to those points that he thinks most important in the fight. 
And then he uses an old historical illustration of this. On the battlefield of Waterloo, there was a farmhouse that Wellington, and remember Wellington is the famous general who defeated Napoleon, right? And Napoleon was just, just marching, steamrolling uh, over his enemies and, and territory that he wanted to gain. But Wellington understood a strategic place, a farmhouse as it were, and saw this location as the key to the situation. Murray continues, he did not spare his troops in his endeavor to hold that point. The victory depended on it. And so it happened as he predicted it would. It is the same in the conflict between the believer and the powers of darkness. The place of private prayer is the key. The strategic position where decisive victory is obtained. It's hard to fathom if, if you think about your particular place of prayer that so much spiritual ground is being gained there day by day. It's difficult to believe that those little personal moments alone with the Lord, away from the people that are nearest and dearest to you, away from even the regular routine and demands of life could amount to such spiritual significance, but they do. And Jesus knew it, and he lived it, and he modeled it, And this is part of what the disciples were seeing in him that compelled them to say, Lord, teach us to pray. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door. I'll come back to this at the conclusion, but look at the next phrase. And know that Jesus is saying, you're praying to your father. And he does note briefly that your father's in secret. That's one of the challenges. We can't see him. We wish we could. He doesn't speak audibly, at least typically. But he is there. And he is your father. Again, Craig Keener notes in his commentary on Matthew, Jesus is speaking of a relationship that denotes both respectful dependence and affectionate intimacy as well as obedience. There's a relationship that Jesus calls us into when we are called to repent of our sins and put our faith in him for our salvation. And that relationship includes a true fatherhood. You are praying to one who knows you are dependent upon him. You are praying to one whose love for you has overflowed. That's one of the reasons we chose that song, how deep the father's love for us. And if he did not spare his only son, but delivered up Jesus to the cross for you, he's not gonna withhold any lesser thing from you now. He loves for you to pray, wants you to pray, commands you to pray. Keener goes on to note, In first century Jewish Palestine, children were powerless social dependents. And fathers were viewed as strong providers and examples on whom their children could depend. What a contrast to many homes, even in our own society today. Is it hard for you to believe that God, our Father, is any better, any more attentive or helpful or caring or loving than your earthly father. As we have gotten to know you as our church family in the five and a half years we've been here now, the more stories I hear, the more my heart breaks for how many of you, how many of you grew up in homes where your father either was absent or just wicked. That's a terrible burden to bear. 
And I know from talking to several of you that it, it actually can be a stumbling block with passages just like this. You want to believe that God is a father, but the earthly experience and example that you've had to this point really makes it difficult for you to say, this is a good thing. Well, my dear friend, your father who is in heaven is not at all like your earthly father. We read at the outset of the service, Romans eight fifteen. but listen to these words again. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba. There is no more personal or intimate term that God reveals himself than by Abba. It is the cry of infants and little ones who have yet to form the skills necessary to enunciate words and employ proper names or titles. It's the cry of little children who recognize two things. First, their inability to do for themselves what needs to be done. And number two, the ability of the father to do all that needs to be done. Abba. It's the cry of the children of God in particular who in a, in a parallel way, a spiritual parallel, would say, I, I haven't yet formed the skills or found the strength or wisdom or endurance that is necessary to live out these days of strain and struggle. And your father knows that. And that's why he says, pray to me. And as you do, although there are many other names and titles you might employ, please come to me crying, Abba. That can be one of the sweetest expressions of our faith and our humility recognizing our deficiency, recognizing our lack, recognizing our absolute dependency upon him. There is no greater privilege in the Christian life than that of calling the most high God, the maker of heaven and earth, the creator that we spent some time looking at uh, through the, the lens of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 before Christmas. No greater privilege than calling him Father. There in the privacy and quiet of that inter- inner sanctuary, we enter the presence of this invisible God who is our Father. And as we do, everything about us, everything that lies hidden in our hearts, even things we can't fully understand or find words to express to the people around us, even people that we love and trust and wish we could, things that are unknown to the world are visible to Him. Look at what Jesus says. Your Father who is in secret sees in secret. There's nothing about you that is not hidden to him on this day. For some of you, that would be terrifying, but for those of you who've known the power of his forgiveness and of his welcome, that is, that is marvelous to think that the, this father to whom we pray knows everything about us. And look at what Jesus says, he will reward you. That is, he will give or do something necessary in fulfillment of obligations that he's made upon himself. We don't obligate God to anything, but he obligates himself to us. That's what parents do. And, and there are some really sweet, visible illustrations of that in the room today. Second row right here. Congratulations. I mean, you guys have assumed an unbelievable obligation. Is this, is this grandma? Yeah. Aren't you happy it's their obligation now? And like, yeah, yeah. Others of you, which we'll, we'll say more at this at the end of the service, but on January 22nd, we're gonna have another round of baby dedications, children dedications. We're on the backside of parenting, and I'm thankful for that in many ways. But what an obligation. But you know, 
your heavenly father who has obligated himself doesn't look at you as his child as an imposition. You're not an inconvenience. You're not an irritation. And even that same request you make over and over and over and over again never gets under his skin. This father would never look at you and say, would you just stop already? I heard you the first time. That's how some of you think, though, because unfortunately you had an earthly father who treated you that way. No, this father says, I see you as you are, and I have obligated myself to reward you. I'm going to give you those things that are necessary to fulfill the obligations and even your expectation. The father sees and rewards. Look at verse 8. This is the father who knows and hears. Your father knows what you need before you ask him, Jesus says. Let's talk about that knowledge, first of all, that is he sees you and understands you perfectly. He possesses the specific information uh, that you fear he might not know. That's some of the frustration in earthly relationships, isn't it? Like sometimes you want people to understand and, and you can't find the words. Or other times you're saying it with all clarity and the other person you know, responds in a way where you're like, you're not listening to me. You're missing my point. And so there's a breakdown of communication and a breakdown of understanding, but not with this father. He knows. He knows. Even knows before you ask him what you need. Now let's talk about that need for just a moment. When Jesus uses this word need, he's speaking of those things that are lacking and particularly necessary. If you go to the end of Matthew 6, look at verse 31 and 32. We read the fuller portion of this uh, in the middle of the service as Daniel led us. Um, but look at verse 31 again, Matthew 6, 31. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. I mean, the Lord, let's start with the necessities of life. He's the one who created you to need food. He's the one that created you to need hydration. He's the one that knows your, your skin, your body, as he put it together, and as marvelous as it is, needs to have, have clothing to protect from the cold temperatures, from the burning sun. He knows all of that. Now, think again with me for a moment, because in verse 32, Jesus says, the Gentiles seek after all these things. Here's the question. Why do the non-religious have to seek after all these things and believers don't? I mean, is God inviting us into a kind of welfare state? He's like, hey, you know, work's done for you. I'm just going to provide, so go down to the post office and collect your monthly check. No, that's not what's going on here. Because God has actually created us for work. We know that from Genesis, know that from other passages in the Scripture. He wants you to get out of bed, be gainfully employed, as he gives you strength and ability to do that. That's the norm. What he's talking about here, though, is that for the non-religious, go back to what we were looking at just a moment ago, the non-religious who have no relationship with God, in many ways, they must operate not as independent people. I want you to think in terms of orphans. There are a handful of you here who were abandoned by a parent or parents at a particular age, and functionally, you, you had to begin to operate a little bit like an orphan. That meant it was on you to figure out where you were going to sleep. It was on you to figure out where you were going to get your next meal. It was on you to figure out where you were going to get winter clothing 
for the cold temperatures that were rolling around. Orphans don't have the benefit of a relationship with a parent. And that's the distinction that God is making here. It grieves my heart when I hear well-intentioned people say, well, we're all God's children. We're all created by God in his image, but not everyone on planet Earth can say, God in heaven is my father. And my friend, if you are here this morning never having entered into a relationship with the God who created you by faith in Jesus Christ, by faith in his death on the cross for you, by faith in his miraculous resurrection from the tomb, by faith in the gospel, then you are not actually God's child. And the pressure does rest on you. Does that begin to explain why you might be so exhausted in your spirit? So fearful when new economic reports come out or you look at your retirement accounts? Does that explain why you have difficulty sleeping? Because you know that even when you wake up in the morning, there's nobody there to buffer you from what life might be bringing to you. It's a horrible position to be in. And God in heaven does not want you to remain there. And that's why he invites you, even on this day, leave that spiritual orphanhood and come to him. Come to him. I've shared with you before, I'll just touch on it briefly and then move on, but you know, functionally, there are many of us who still operate like spiritual orphans. And even our prayer lives, or the lack thereof, demonstrates it. Prayer actually is the sweet conversation between God's children and dad. You know, the car you drive is his. The house you live in or rent, it's his. The clothes on your back, it's your father's. The food you put in your body, it, it came from him. It's all his. And I've shared this with you before. I try to practice this because my default mode is to think and operate like an orphan. So I got to fix the stuff that's broken in my life. Now, the, our prayers even ought to reflect a sweet relationship and say, Father, what should I do with your car that's not running right right now? Father, what do you want me to do with your property? Do we say, stay? Do we sell? Do we, do we just rent one of your many, many properties? You're not an orphan. The devil wants you to think you are. Our adversary wants us to think that that we can't cry out to this father, but Jesus comes back and says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And Jesus goes on in Matthew 6.32 to say, or goes on to say, your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Think about what that little phrase all includes. God knows that you need money for your child's field trip this week. God knows that you need direction on future plans. God knows that your child's crazy ideas about skipping college and just traveling the world to find himself tears at your heart. God knows about that job transfer that caught you by surprise. God knows the healthcare decisions that you're in the middle of making. He knows. He knows. He knows before you ask him. You know, when we pray, we never inform God of anything. There's not one moment where you would say, Father, I need to share some things with you that he would go, for real? How did I miss that? Gabriel, what have you been doing? You were supposed to tell me. No, I mean, that's ludicrous. He knows. Well, he not only knows, I love this, 
he hears. Now, Jesus doesn't state it explicitly right here, but he's drawing a contrast, and by implication, this is exactly what he means. So the, the, non, uh, the, the non-religious or, or pagans who might practice this, they are the ones who think they are heard for their many phrases. Remember that? We were looking at that just a moment ago. But clearly Jesus is saying, you're not, you're not heard because you heap up these empty phrases. You're heard when you ask for this reason. You ready for this? This is profound. You pray to a hearing father. It's as simple as that. He hears. Hears with a view of understanding. Hears with previous and full and complete knowledge. He hears. You don't have to pile up empty phrases or spiritual sounding jargon. Some of you are newer believers and you listen to other people around you pray and they're like, oh wow, if I could just pray like that one day. Hey, stop comparing yourself. Just talk to him. I actually, in some ways, love to hear new believers pray more than seasoned saints. And you want to know why? Because it's so simple and straightforward and direct. Hey, God, I was thinking, and um, I, I don't know what to do about this. I don't know if this is right. And often a new believer will make these apologies through the prayer, like they're going to get it wrong. And I think God the Father is, is just smiling down on that, saying, oh, bless your heart. I, I know, yep, keep talking to me. And it's the same way parents who begin to work with little children when they're learning to talk and they babble away and they say things in the wrong syntax and word order and they use uh, the wrong vocabulary, all kinds of stuff, but you're intent on listening to the heart of that child and you're saying, keep, keep talking to me. And, and you'll correct them as necessary and say, try saying the word this way. And you know, honey, actually you need to use a singular noun there and not a plural one. And I know English language especially is a little funky there. But, but you never criticize them and say, what are you, an idiot? Don't you know how to talk? No, you love those little ones and you grow them. And, and you know in time they're gonna get it all figured out. Your father loves to hear you pray. By faith, we come into the presence of the Father. We pour out our hearts. We describe our needs. We tell him how we lack the basic necessities of life. And all the while, he is drawing us near to his heart, taking us in his almighty arms, as it were, saying, child of mine, I know, I know, I hear. Keep praying. You know, dear friend, he knows today that your heart is broken. He knows that you're fearful about the company layoffs that are coming. He knows you're worried about paying your bills. He knows you're distressed about finding a mate or your child's mate. He knows you're uncertain about that important choice that rests on you today. He knows. And the God we're praying to is a father who knows and hears, who sees and rewards. Now real quickly, how do we put this into practice personally? First of all, just determined to pray to your father because Jesus says in this passage, when you pray, it's almost like he's just assuming you're gonna do this. And it is true. It's, it's, the, it's a normal part of the Christian life, so when you pray, but sometimes we need to determine to pray, be a little more disciplined in it. Second of all, set a time and place because again, following the Lord's teaching, he says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Wherever that private place is for you, maybe you'll have a spot in the home, maybe you, to, to be a true follower of Jesus, need to go up on the mountainside and pray. And you are free to use that, you know, with your spouse or young people with your parents. I just want to be like Jesus. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go up the little Cottonwood Canyon and pray. That's what Jesus would do. Find that quiet place. Set aside that time. Make it a priority. And then number three, this seems really simple, but list your needs. 
Not because Jesus or the Father needs to be informed, but because Jesus has given us such powerful incentive to just to, to share it. And then I don't want to miss this. Part of prayer is asking him. Make the request. You may say, oh, I don't want to bother God. <laughs> really? You, you don't understand him if you think you're in imposition. Well, he's got more important things to worry about. Actually, no. And he's telling you in this passage, you, you are his care and concern. Ask him. Then, as a church family, and I use the word corporately, but only because we are, we are a body of believers, you've got some immediate opportunities that are before us. Wednesday night is our uh, night of worship. We're beginning a, a new year and a, and a new semester. We won't quite launch community groups for another couple of weeks, but we're coming here Wednesday at 7 o'clock, and it's going to be a night of, of prayer and praise. We've had these before. Some of you are newer to the church. Uh, these are really sweet family times. It's not a big production, uh, but we love to sing and uh, we love to pray, so we're gonna do it. Then when community groups restart, some of you aren't involved in those yet, but that's one of the key times where in smaller groups we come together in part to pray, to pray for one another, to love one another. Ladies' Bible study is gonna start in short order. Um, the ladies always take time to pray as they gather. We have a Tuesday morning and Friday morning men's meetup. Our groups always spend time in prayer and then our monthly men's breakfast, which guys, we're gonna have one this coming week. Those are the opportunities as this body is together to pray. And, and finally, and not the least of those, is part of the reason we've designated three of the next four Sunday equip classes for prayer. How thankful we are for this powerful relationship. A father who sees, who rewards, who knows, and who hears.